Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 355 of the Juicebox podcast. Today's show is an hour of Ask Scott and Jenny. I'll tell you about Jenny in a second, but let's look at my notes here about what's involved in this out. Increase base. I can't read my own writing. Boy, this is a thing. Well, all right, hold on. Let me count the scribbles. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Jenny and I are going to talk apparently about seven different things about type 1 diabetes today. And all of those questions were sent in by listeners just like you. I'm sorry I cannot be more direct than that. I tried to make a list. I wrote them down. I just, hold on. Air travel with a pump. All right, that one I got figured out. Are kids easier when they get older? Maybe that's what that means. My writing is terrible. Is there a method to basal increases, temp basal increases? That might be what that is. Order, ordered, Kathy? That can't be right. Um, Figure out bumps. I guess that's about how do you know how to bump a nudge? Bad turn coed courtly issues. Wait, what? <clears throat> between, okay, not bad turn, between old something issues. Health BGs. Is that health? Halt. Halls. Okay. Um, anyway, it's going to be a surprise. It's a great episode. I just edited it. I really loved it. Um, I just edited it the other day. Is edited a word or do I say it wrong? It's hard to know, I guess. All right, hold on a second. Let me tell you a little bit about Jenny Smith. You know Jenny, of course, from the Diabetes Pro Tip episodes from Ask Scott and Jenny and Defining Diabetes. Jenny has type 1 diabetes now for over 30 years. I wonder if I could do this off the top of my head. I'm going to go to where I have the information. Give me a second. I'm going to go to where I have the information about Jenny, but I'm going to try to say it off of the top of my head first. So I'm near Jenny's thing, but I'm not looking at it. All right, ready? Off the top of my head. Jenny Smith has had type 1 diabetes for over 30 years. She's a certified diabetes educator, something nutritionist, a certified trainer on most makes and models of pumps and continuous glucose monitors. She's a terrific person. All right, hold on. Ready? Now I want to go to the thing. Jenny Smith has lived with type 1 diabetes for 30 years. She holds a bachelor's degree in human nutrition and biology from the University of Wisconsin. She's a registered and licensed dietitian, a certified diabetes educator, and a certified trainer on most makes and models of insulin pumps and continuous glucose monitors. But of course, most importantly, she is the best Juicebox podcast guest ever, unless you've been on the show, and then in that case, you're the best one, and Jenny's the second best one. I wonder how well I got that from the first thing. We are four minutes into this now. Are you guys listening to this? I'm so sorry. This episode of the Juicebox podcast is sponsored today by... Dexcom, Omnipod, the Contour Next One blood glucose meter, and Touched by Type 1. There are no ads in the show today. I'm just here to remind you that these are the advertisers and that they're lovely. And if you're interested in them, using my links helps the podcast, and I appreciate it. 
Usually I tell you Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. MyOmnipod.com forward slash juice box. TouchedByType1.org. And I usually say something about Contour Next One, but I've got my own link now. So you got to remember this one now. ContourNext.com forward slash juice box. And now I'm just going to make sure that that's actually correct because that feels wrong. Nope, it's right. ContourNext.com forward slash juice box. Check out the Contour Next One blood glucose meter and all of the meters that Contour sells. Also, do you know it's possible that you're paying more to your insurance than it would cost to buy test strips in cash? You should check that out at the link as well. Do you want a free, no-obligation demo of the Omnipod sent directly to your home? Do that at my link, too. MyOmnipod.com forward slash juice box. Dexcom is just where all the great information about the G6 is, but that's a lot, so go check that out, too. And when you're done, you're going to need some energy because you've been on the internet now and you're getting sleepy. Touchbytype1.org. It'll lift you right back up again. Let's get to Jenny and the Ask Scott and Jenny questions. Thank you, everyone, for sending in the questions that you sent. I am sorry that at the moment I don't remember what any of them were, but I do remember that they were wonderful. Jenny was fantastic. And I, of course, was delightful. Hey, now, please remember... Please remember that nothing you hear on the Juicebox podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. One last thing, juiceboxdocs.com is an ever-growing list of doctors and other helpful people in the medical industry that you found, you the listeners have found and shared with me. We're making a beautiful list. You can add to it if you want, or go take from it. It's like that penny thing at the convenience store. Give a penny, take a penny. Give a good doctor, take a good doctor. When Jenny and I record, we usually catch up for a few minutes first, and I don't record it normally, but this time I did. It's just us talking about weird stuff going on around coronavirus in our lives, and I left it in for you. You can eavesdrop on the silly things we say to each other when no one's listening. Because their haircut had been delayed twice we had had haircuts set up right including my own because we got a friend who has um her own shop and so she was going to do the boys it's going to let the boys watch a, a movie with their little girl who is just a little older than oscar is and she was going to do my hair all set up then we rescheduled it because things had been like postponed now we've re rescheduled it again for like mid-may who knows whether that but my boys look like shaggy dogs like i was like you <laughs> Even my husband was like, their hair needs to be cut. Like it was getting to the point of like they'd sleep and that bed head was like just not combable. So how did you No matter do? how much. So I just, I cut it. Have you ever cut anyone's hair before? Um, I, I've, I've trimmed their hair before in a pinch like this. Okay. But like this was really like, it was a haircut and I, <laughs> it's fine. Kelly, Kelly said to me the other day, uh, time to go to the heavier hair product. And I was like, yes, I'm going to need something with a little more control. Uh, I had my hair kind of short recently. And so I was just using like a little paste or Gel mud or whatever, whatever. The, and just like just a little bit. And now I use it and my hair is just like, we, that, we can overpower that. And, you know, <laughs> it's either that or I'm going to have to go to a baseball hat pretty soon. 
And I, I don't think I have the head to uh, shave my head just to start over again. So I'm not doing that. Uh. No, no. It's kind of funny. I actually, as I refer to like those days with diabetes where you're just like, I don't know what's going on today. And it's just weird and bizarre. I called them, I call them bad diabetes hair days where there's no amount of like mousse or gel right. or whatever that you can throw at it that makes it like flop down the right way. That's how, what I kind of refer to that. How yeah. long have you been in your house by now? This is in three days. I'm on to three solid weeks. Yeah, by the end of this week, it'll be three solid weeks. Yeah. Uh, can I make an an admission? Yeah. I know a lot of people say this, but I haven't really noticed that much of a difference in my life, which I'm assuming is bad for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, funny. But also. I find it incredibly relaxing. That you don't actually have to physically go anywhere. Yeah. Well, the expectations are gone now. Are gone. Right? Yeah. Like, gone. I've, like I've, you're not I've, expected to attend the ball down the street or go nothing. to somebody's like hoopla, right? If you I just, feed yeah. my kids, keep my house clean, talk to my wife the way we always do, there's nothing there that would change, and right. put this podcast out on a schedule, nothing else in the world matters right now. Yeah. That's the only, the biggest things I mean that are changes for us. Like I love, I love grocery shopping. I love grocery shopping. And at this point, my husband is the one that's actually going now to the grocery store. you picked a person? Because we picked the person yeah. and that I'm person the person doesn't that yeah. doesn't have, you know, yeah. so, so yeah. So he's the one going to the grocery store and doing all that. I like, I feel kind of a sense of loss. Oh, wow. Now I hear you. I'm I'm the one having to go to the store, so yeah. I, and I've been twice now, um, and I'm like a ninja. I just right. I have a little schmutz in my pocket, you know. I'm sure there's a real word for it, but the stuff that kills the germs. And right. I, I head in, you know. I, I I don't touch anything. Bang bang bang! I grab my stuff, get out of there, gel the hands, move to the car, get the stuff into the car, gel the hands again, get back in the car. Um, you know, get it home. I strip away the packaging and do all the things you're supposed to do. Then clean the place where I stripped away the packaging, clean my hands again, and I'm done. And yeah. I'm just like, huh, probably should be doing this all the time. Not this intensely, but. But something similar. Yeah, actually, it sounds very much like uh, Ginger, you know, Ginger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she actually posted something the other day about this is this is what I do my one trip out of the house. Like, and, and we also in, we've been really trying to like, we get the load of what we need. Mm -hmm. And then we really like our refrigerator right now is on the minimum. I think the only fresh vegetable we have left in our fridge right now is celery. And I'm like, <laughs> we have got to get to the refrigerator or the grocery because I need more than celery and hummus yeah. to eat. <laughs> That's a Facebook post for you, Jenny. We're down to celery. It's time We're to go We're down to celery. Yeah. It's time, right? But so Ginger actually takes, she has gloves. She wears them. She actually takes in paper bags to the grocery store so she can get her groceries into the paper bags rather than having to push a cart that somebody else pushed. Right. She takes them to the self-checkout so nobody else has to touch her groceries. Mm -hmm. She puts them into her bags and then she actually doesn't even take those bags into the house. She like takes the stuff out, puts them in a new bag to go into the house. And okay. she's like, and I wash and I scrub and I sanitize. And I. she's like, that's what I do. I and saw like, my friend washing a brand new bag of potatoes in her sink yesterday. 
<laughs> and I, I had two simultaneous thoughts. I thought that's a great idea, and I laughed a little bit. So, right. but I, when I put the hand sanitizer on, I hand sanitized me and the cart. <laughs> but, but again, I got lucky because when we moved my son out of uh, college, he had a forty ounce jug of hand sanitizer that he hadn't touched. Oh, nice! So it was like finding a gold brick in the top of his. Like I was up in the top of his, you know, his like, shelf. Yeah. I was like, "Oh my god, Cole, I'm so glad you're coming home. <laughs> you're right? saving all of our lives. Look at this." Right. And 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 then it made me think, like, why does he buy stuff like this and then not touch it and use it for anything? Because he, we didn't give it to him. He needed it for something. He got it right. into his head at some point, you know. Yeah, he put it in the back of his closet. Yes, there's a 20 year old boy for you. He heard yeah. about what was going on. I do remember sending him a text, and I said, "Look, I know I bug you sometimes at school about sanitizing your hands." Please be a little more mindful about it. Like I was trying to get him moving before this all right. exploded without worrying him. And so I guess he went to the trouble of buying it, which was not using it. Put it, it away yeah. rather than using it. I'll use it when it really gets bad. I was like, all right. Now, he did say he had a little one he'd been using. So I'm like, maybe, oh, that's good. maybe he was using it. I mean. Or maybe he was using the big one to refill his little one. It wasn't open, Jenny. So mm-hmm. <laughs> let's try not to be too hopeful for it. Giving him a little credit. He's Giving two years little... into college. He just committed to his major the other day. He's not exactly a an out in front kind of kid. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway. Um, oh, oh, I want to tell you something real quick. And then we'll yeah. start this. Recording. And. All right, Jenny, we're, let's get back to our Ask Scott and Jenny list. I've, I was going to say, what's on the plan today? Well, I, I never tell you, know. You I, know, I never know. I appreciate that about you, by the way, that you've never once been <laughs> like, like tell me exactly what we're going to talk about before we talk about it, which is why I, I think was this, a surprise. <laughs> this time, I actually marked the ones we did with a little word done next to it, which, trust me, is a oh, major, major consideration for me because I'm not normally even that smart. Um, you're smart. You're just not that organized, right? Well, sure. <laughs> I keep a lot of stuff in my head. I don't write stuff down. I'm not. I don't check boxes and stuff like that. But sometimes I'm like, this is a necessary thing to me. All right, I'm going to start with. Hmm. Well, our list here is also very long, so it, putting yes. done next to them was is definitely helpful. helpful. Yeah, but it's, it, it's a long list. I'm just telling you, I'm not normally that smart. <laughs> um, Bethany asks, "Is there a way to estimate how long?" An increased basil will be necessary based on the amount of fat, carbs, or protein in a meal. So she's looking for if there's this many carbs, then do it for that long. But I don't know if there is or not. Not typically. I, and that's why we have the we have a standard of what we say start with, mm-hmm. right? For fat, end of the meal, increase the basil by 50% over the next six to eight hours experience will show you whether or not that works well. I, for one, have found that an increase in basil for a high-fat meal in the daytime, I don't need as much of an increase, and I don't need it for as long oh. at night. So, for because example, active, like if I think? I think it's because during the day, I'm, I'm up, I'm moving after the meal time. Okay. Like if I go and I have a higher fat type of a lunch, let's call it pizza or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. That's the typical example. Um, usually in the evening, I would need that 50% increase. And I typically need it for about six hours. Okay. During the daytime, lunch, I usually need maybe a 30% increase. And I only need it for about three or four hours. Okay. And I, I, I 
have to say from just experimentation, I think it's truly because after lunch, I'm not going to lay down for a four hour nap. Mm -hmm. I'm up, I'm moving, I'm doing things. I've got things to do around the house or with my kids or whatever. I'm just busier. We're in the evening time after a dinner like that. While I might be doing some things like putting my kids to bed or doing the dishes or maybe in the laundry or something. But for the most part, I'm a lot more like sedentary into the evening. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I, listen, obviously, I think about it in pictures, but in, in my mind, the basil's a it's a heavy jacket, and you mm-hmm. need you you put it on while you need it, and when you get too warm, you take it off. And so it, yeah. that's easy to say if you have a CGM, but if you don't, then just test at More. At, at intervals. Mm-hmm. I also believe that after experience, you know, the answer will come to you. Let's say it ends up being four hours that you need this basal rate for. You know, the second and third time it ends up being four hours. Well, I mean, then I stop testing and I assume it's four hours. Right. You know, but you have to try it to know. To know. And the same thing kind of goes for protein. You know, the the bolusing strategy for the most part, not basal increase, but the bolusing strategy for protein says try to start it at the end of the meal, extend the whole bolus out over the course of a three-hour time period. Well, on average, people probably need it somewhere between two and four hours, depending on the portion of the meat. You know, if you're only bolusing for 12 extra grams of protein versus the night that you go for your 16-ounce pound of steak and you're bolusing for 40 grams of protein, very likely that's going to also define a time to extend it out over. Because of the portion, right? It's kind of like the load impact versus just, you know. Yeah. So that that can help with that too. The other thing for protein is kind of the kind of protein. You may find that leaner proteins such as like a lean chicken or even most fish, fish. tend to have a lower impact on blood sugar over the hours after, even if the quantity is large, you might still have to cover it, but maybe not quite as much as something like red red meat. meat. Okay. Red meat has, not only does it take longer to digest, Mm -hmm. but it also has a a lingering impact. Yeah. So those are some things to consider. I wish people could see that uh, last night Arden had a, uh, an avocado salad and edamame Mm. for dinner. Yeah. And I want to say that I bolused, 40 or 50 carbs for that. Like, and that I think is stuff people look at and go, there's, that's free almost. That's a vegetable. And they can, I looked at the fat and the avocado was a big part of it. Like, I think the true carb count, if I was really paying attention, was probably more like 30 carbs once you put the dressing on and stuff like that, which she didn't use a ton of. But I looked at the fat and I was like, all right, like, we're going to need more power here. There's, there's going to be more glycemic load here from the fat. And mm-hmm. not in the way you think of it normally, not not from carbs, but just from its ability to hold it up, which I think, yeah, I think that might lead us into Jamie's question here. Now, Jamie, bemuse, Jamie says maybe this is a pro tip, and and you tell me if you think it needs its own um, discussion, like miniature discussion, uh, because this is something I've, I don't think we, I don't think I put a ton of effort into understanding, but I know that some people do. She's asking about eating food in a certain order. Her example is like saving fruit for last uh, when you aren't as low as you would be when you started the meal or like the other way around. Like, what do you do, you know? So the timing or the placement of the food intake 
to a degree, there is some there is some strategy for what she's kind of talking about. Right. You know, if you are starting on the higher end blood sugar wise, and let's say you didn't have as much time to pre-bolus as you would have really liked to. Mm-hmm. Sure, if you start the meal with like iceberg lettuce and the protein part of it, right. you're going to have that sitting in your stomach first, getting worked on first, mm-hmm. before you maybe get to your baked potato or your rice pilaf or your fruit on the end or whatever it might be, starting with the lower glycemic or almost no carb kinds of foods first. Yeah. Puts that into the stomach to get going. We know that proteins and fats take longer time to process and digest to begin with. And well, I mean, I kind of always think of my stomach kind of like a cement mixer, Mm -hmm. right? It's not just taking your chicken and digesting it and then moving on to your berries and then digesting those. I mean, it does all get churned together and processed, you know, with stomach acids and whatnot. But for the most part, yes, if you can start the meal with the things that you know are going to be slower, letting the insulin kind of get working and going, and then add in the carbs at the end, absolutely, that's a strategy strategy to use. Yeah. And I mean, I've had I've sent Arden into a meal more times than, you know, I can count where she's you know, 70 or 65. And the last thing in my text was like, start with the, you know, whatever the simplest sugar is. Right. In, in start the, with the, yeah. right. The yeah. apple or right. yeah. applesauce yeah. or whatever. Start, right. Go Absolutely. with the banana. I've said before, eat the banana first. And, and I know that's not exactly, like, I don't think she looks at it and thinks I should eat the banana first. Although I don't know because yesterday, what did she say to me yesterday? That was, oh, she, she said, can I have a snack? And I was like, yeah, sure. She goes, I said, what do you want? And she said, um, oh, no, wait, it was at the end of breakfast. And she's like, can I have a little more food? And I said, sure, what do you want? And she said, can I have some bacon and an orange? And I was like, yeah, you want a bacon with orange? And we had a little bacon left on a plate, and I had oranges, and I thought, all right. And she looked so happy. <laughs> she's like <laughs> eating the orange and picking at the bacon. And I was like, well, that's a weird mix. Uh, but it's <laughs> definitely what she wanted. So, um, but, you know, I mean, I think that's. I think it's reasonable to be thoughtful about it. Now, I do know there are some people who steadfastly eat their meals in orders to keep these incredibly stable blood sugars. I don't know. I can't speak to it. And I don't know that I would want to live my whole life that way either. Right. You know, and if so. strategy wise, that's what you found works and that makes you happiest because then you're not dealing with the flux in blood sugar. Great. Right if on. that's your strategy, have at it. Keep yeah. up with it. You know, everybody finds what works yeah. or hopefully they're learning to find what works. All, right. Yeah. Um, but I mean, even, even in consideration it, if you're looking at a dessert, like at the end of a really big meal, a good example is something like a Thanksgiving dinner mm-hmm. or a holiday meal, where you've had all of these like heavier, heavy more dense types of foods. And then at the end of the meal, you add like Pie. grandma's, yeah. <laughs> apple pie with like marshmallows baked on the top of it or whatever it is, you know, you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is all sugar. Well, what else do you have to consider? You have to consider all that other food that's sitting in your stomach so, so heavy. Mm -hmm. That might actually be a time that while normally you'd take a bolus and pre-bolus everything, not even choosing an extended bolus. At this point, you've got all this extra food sitting in your stomach and while this is simpler sugar, its impact is going to be drawn out. 
So you may actually want to do an extended bolus for this dessert because otherwise you're going to go low. Because it's flopping into your stomach and laying on top. It's not Correct. part of what's happening right away. Correct. Yeah. See, that's the stuff that is it's smart to understand. And I just think I think of it as experiential. Like I just, I'm like, oh, I know from experience this doesn't need a pre-bolus the way it would normally. We already, And I think of it as like we already have so much insulin in the process is all right. I guess we're saying the same thing. The yeah. process is already happening. Now we're just throwing in, you know, like another teaspoon into a gallon of water. And, right. you know, okay. By the way, all of Jamie's um, questions are like, I think this would be a good pro tip. I think she's trying to uh, produce the podcast here, which, by the way, <laughs> there's some really good questions here. I don't think this one needs its own episode. So I'm going to ask one more of Jamie's questions because she asks specifically, I want to know Jenny's take on artificial sugar. So artificial sweeteners. I know they affect people differently, but she said, in y'all's opinion, which ones seem to have the least impact? She said, I also feel like a lot of people don't realize you can see rise from zero carb drinks. I will tell you that Arden doesn't drink a lot of soda. But if I start seeing her blood sugar get sticky, I look to see if she's got a Diet Coke. And that sometimes that holds her up a little higher. It's not like, don't get me wrong, it doesn't make her 300, but it, right. could, it could make an incredibly difficult 140. Right. It doesn't want to give up. So there are, um, I mean, if you wanted, gosh, I'm trying to remember what the university was that did a study on, like, how much of the on the market artificial sweeteners is considered safe according to the type of artificial sweetener in the product, right? Mm-hmm. So if you've got something like equal, you're talking about the artificial sweetener aspartame. Okay. Right? Um, if you're talking about Splenda, you're talking about um, sucralose. So, and then of course there is sweet and low, which, um, is the, the saccharin kind of component right now. There are also what I call alternative sweeteners that I think sometimes get falsely right. That get falsely kind of categorized with artificial stevia being one of those alternative sweeteners. Um, it comes from a plant. Yes, it is processed. The The sweetening pieces that come out of the stevia plant get processed in order to make a product mm-hmm. that you can like, you know, put into your your uh, drink, yeah. tea, coffee, whatever, or sweeten a, bev- you know, sweeten a baked product with, with whatnot. But the studies around impact from stevia comparative to those that are truly artificial by artificial i mean chemical in nature they don't come from natural outdoor plant life (laughs) (laughs) right they are created in a lab um so those there are acceptable limits to like how many packets a day technically you should have or how many soft drinks you should have with how much per you know beverage or how much how much per packet or whatnot and each of the different sweeteners does have a limit to it i mean it's it's a lot i mean most of them it's like 15 packets a day or 25 packets a day i mean and maybe some people are having that much i i hope seems like a lot to you it seems like an awful lot to me. Can I now? But... Can I say something now that we've met in person? 
Yeah. Not that this doesn't come across in video. You're in really good shape. Like, you take really good care of yourself. And so, like, Jenny's fit, you you know? (laughs) She should, she should see how embarrassed she is right now. Only only <laughs> I can see her and she's still embarrassed. Yeah. But I mean, I thought you'd have a take on this. Like, you know, I guess some people might be like, here's a glass of unsweetened tea. I'll put five packets of Splenda in it or something. I don't right. know. You know? Right. And I, I mean, that it, it's, a, it's a question that she asks a good question because it's a, something that whenever I'm talking nutrition with people mm-hmm. in a visit, it often does come up. Yeah. You know, what do you think about the artificial sweeteners, especially in the women that I work with through pregnancy? Right. It's a very common question. Should I be, you know, should I stop drinking my Diet Coke, blah, 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 or whatever it is? You yeah. know, I, you know, we, there are studies, I think that they're kind of like a 50-50. There are studies that kind of are on the side of, these are chemical in nature. They're, they're not natural. They're not like going out and pulling the broccoli off of your garden stalk, right? right? It's something that some very smart lab chemistry person put together and hey, it's got a sweet taste and hey, it doesn't, for many people, it doesn't raise blood sugar. Mm -hmm. I can't say that's 100% true for everybody. Um, like you said, yeah. sometimes you'll see a rise and, and sometimes it's, not, it's sweetener to sweetener. Yeah. I don't know if it's the, I don't know if it's the artificial sweetener specifically, or if it's impacting her in a different way, or I don't know what it's doing to her, but her sure. blood, if she drinks too much diet Coke, her blood sugar gets more difficult. Right. That's all. Right. You know. Right. And, and I've actually had some people, I, I used to te- teach a, um, an in-hospital type two class. Um, for people with type 2 diabetes. And even they, it was a very common question. And I can very much remember one older woman, she was like in her upper 60s, the cutest little old lady. And she was like, I can't drink those diet beverages. I just can't drink them. I'm like, okay, well, why? You know, the class is always like a discussion about, you know, what works for you, blah, blah, blah. She's like, every time I have them, my blood sugar goes right up. And so, and then obviously she didn't have a continuous monitor or anything. She was really only doing it by finger stick analysis, you know, and whatnot. But I mean, she, her records actually showed, I mean, she'd have nothing in the afternoon except her diet soda. And by dinner time, her blood sugar was going up. Mm -hmm. If she didn't have it, it wasn't going up. It didn't happen. So... Yeah. So there. So aside from what you just said, which makes total sense, that you know, limiting the chemicals going into your body probably a smart move. Um, I don't eat that much sugar to begin with. So when I have a cup of tea, if I use two teaspoons of sugar, I mean, whatever, right? Like, if listen, if two teaspoons of sugar in a cup of tea is going to take me down, Jenny, then I guess that's going to take me down. You know, I mean. I I just feel like then it, it wins, but I I think you got eight grams of carb there. Yeah, I, I don't love <laughs> I don't I don't eat a lot of sugar um, at all, but you know I, at least it feels natural to some degree. You know, somebody right. didn't make it in a lab. I'm, ho- I'm and hoping. That's, you know, that's kind of what I say even about like the sugar free like the sugar-free candies and whatnot that are out there. I mean, it kind of brings in, along with artificial sweeteners, of course, there's also then the alternative, like I said, the stevia. But then there's also another sort of bank of sweeteners, which are those um, sugar alcohols, right? And sugar alcohols, again, they come from from plant-based foods. Most of them come from fermenting fruits and vegetable 
carbs or sugars Mm -hmm. so that what ends up happening in the body is the fermenting process allows a much slower impact on blood sugar than you would get from all out sugar. Mm -hmm. So most, you know, of those, um, sugar alcohols, they provide only about half the amount of impact that true sugar does. And it's curve in action is very, very slow. They also, if you eat too many of them are not very nice digestively on you. Um, but I always feel like, you know, if you're going to eat three, sugar-free Hershey candy kisses. I would rather have the real thing. Yeah. And that's just being personal. Like you said, you'd rather have the real sugar in your cup of tea than something that's artificial. And if you account for it in your day total, Mm -hmm. if you're keeping track of things, calorie-wise, most of those sugar-free products aren't lower calorie overall than the counterpart of regular. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes when they take sugar away, they have to add back something else that tastes a little bit better, and it's often fat. Yeah. Well, I I, listen, I will have chocolate once in a while, and there's a a company that makes a chocolate chip that I find to be like a really quality chocolate chip. And instead of having like a Hershey Kiss or something like that, not there's anything wrong with a Hershey Kiss, but there's a, you know... There's a quality issue there, like mass yeah. market chocolate versus it. So I'll buy like a bag of chips. And if I want chocolate, I'll take like, I don't know, four or five chocolate chips. Yeah. And by the way, the bag of chips is like $3 and it lasts forever. You, you know, so um, there's ways to, you know, substitute things and and, Correct. and get more. I don't know. This isn't English, but more real food into right. your snacking, even Correct. when it's snacking like this, you know. Right, right. All right, okay. And I do know, I remember um, if, if somebody wanted the actual information about how much um, artificial sweetener they can take in, mm-hmm. um, it was a study done by the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Um, you can actually go to their website um, and they give you information on how much saccharin, aspartame, and sucralose is appropriate. It's based on a 150-pound person. So. Oh. Yeah, so be 150 pounds and you're taking this data into effect. (laughs) FYI. Or start doing your multiplications and your divisions and your gazintas. Well, all right. Well, this question from Libby may not apply in our new world, um, but flying in an airplane and pumping with an insulin pump. So does air pressure deliver insulin? Is that why some people find themselves lower after a flight if they're wearing a pump? (laughs) <laughs> Jenny, Jenny just re she just readjusted her jaw six different times and a word didn't yeah. come out. <laughs> well, I want to I want to address it in terms of being true in also that there are no studies. There are no true studies mm-hmm. that are approved by some fancy university or research laboratory that has actually done this. However, there is anecdotal, let's call them, mm-hmm. evidence from people that have diabetes, wear insulin pumps, and they've actually documented what happens when you fly with especially a tubed insulin pump. Okay. It's more it's more of a known issue with a tubed insulin pump that in the ascent and descent with a tubed pump, pressurization can actually either withdraw insulin back into the reservoir, thus creating an air bubble in In the the tubing tubing. and potentially then causing a lack in pumped 
insulin, some people experience not only a high at some point or a rise that they can't explain because they haven't had any food or anything else happening on a long flight, or in this example, a drop down often, and a lot of people refer to them as like the baggage claim lows, where they finally get to the baggage claim and as long as their hike through the airport hasn't been like six miles, yeah. you know, and they're huffing it, um, for the most part, people end up waiting for the bags and have a low blood sugar. And why? It's because potentially on descent, there is a pump out of insulin from that piston, from the pressure that pushes the insulin through the tubing and delivers almost a bolus of insulin, then that's, it's not registered by the pump. Right. You can't go into your insulin dose history and see, oh, two units was accidentally delivered. The pump doesn't give you that because it wasn't, there were no button pushes yeah. that did it. So it's like having a, like a, like a flaccid hose full of water and the water is just sitting in it, but you grab one side and give it a squeeze and it runs out the other side. That's so exactly the air right. pressure increases and forces the insulin through and it's Correct. easier to come out of your set. So that's where it goes. Correct. And our recommendation to kind of counter it is on ascent and descent, essentially you disconnect. So for those with tubed pumps, you would disconnect, disconnect from your site as soon as you're rising mm -hmm. or taking off. Once you get to cruising altitude, you go ahead, look at the tubing. If there are any air bubbles, prime the tubing, flush the air bubble out, reconnect cruise through, you know, your three hour flight or whatever it is, as soon as you start your descent, go ahead and disconnect. When you land, go ahead again, take a peek at the tubing. If there are any air bubbles or anything, you essentially flush them out and reconnect. Yeah. That way you get rid of both potential problems. Makes sense. I, I happen to, I'm Googling while you're talking and Medtronic has a little update on their site about you know, oh. just being more like attentive which I think is any company's way of being like, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen. So you pay better attention. But you know, <laughs> And I'm not picking on Medtronic. I'm sure there's a, a version of this language that's probably on everyone's site. Um, but you're saying with Omnipod, it might not exist. Yeah, there's I've only had I've only had one person that I work with um, who has definitely she's noticed something happens. She always she never has highs. She has lows. OK. But that's one um, person, right? So, but again, that's an N of one with one pump. And I, you know, I've I've flown often enough. I've worn Omnipod since two thousand six. Yeah. I've flown a lot in that what almost what, fourteen years ish, right? Yeah. And I can't say that I've noticed anything that's a trend when I fly mm -hmm. that would indicate, yeah, this is definitely happening three quarters of the time. We don't it's treat Arden differently during air travel at all. Um, I mean, it, you know, it, maybe when you get out of the car at the airport, we're not, I wouldn't bolus a 120, you know what I mean? Like I want to get through security and all that stuff with nothing right. going on. But as soon as we're back through, everything goes back to normal. We bolus normally on the plane and every other place. Yep. So, yeah. Okay. The only thing that I guess it's not really an answer to this, like pressurization but the one thing i do do for travel and a lot of people notice is that many times when you're sedentary for more than about a two-hour time period you might actually need a temporary increase in your basal mm -hmm. just from the sedentary nature you know when i fly long distance and i'm going to be sedentary for more than that two hours i find that i need about a 15 to 20 percent basal increase just for to cover the fact that you're just not active anymore just to yeah right <laughs> okay 
So. All right. Yeah. Um, what else? Well, Shannon has one here. Okay. That I don't know if we're going to have the answer to or not, but let's take a look. Uh, it's a long one, so I'm going to synopsize. She's curious about the health of older people with type 1 who have had what she's calling wild blood sugars in the first part of their life, but then learn tighter control later. Um, will they have you know issues like eyes or other health complications? And the last part is people who had to survive without CGMs. Okay, so people who lived before all this technology, you know, like me, yeah, like Jen. <laughs> I lived before all this technology. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I would, I, I would say what we've said in the past is you can't bank health, right? So correct. you. But I don't know. But it also is not a, like, it, you know, the question really, did really poor control lead into issues now that even with good control won't negate them all? We don't, we don't know. Right. Right. I mean, for the most part, that earlier, less than optimal management wasn't good. I mean, it wasn't helpful, right? But does it mean that down the road with more optimized control, especially with the technology that we have, likely the control now is a huge benefit. And the fact that you were likely younger and had the benefit of youth at that point versus being older and now having really tight management that's the benefit now that you're older and as body systems age, things can break down faster. It yeah. is, it's just the life cycle, right? It would, it would make so, sense that, that while your body is older and, you know, by definition more frail, that the better control, the better off it would be. I also, do you remember back when they used to tell you like, oh, you know, don't worry about blood sugar control in the first couple of years when about little kids, even when Arden was first diagnosed, I was like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like a little bit. It does now when I look back on it, like the idea of like, okay, she's young and hopefully she's vital and healthy. And if, you know, we scratch her arm, it's going to heal back over. And so if we scratch some veins on the inside of her body, they should heal. Okay. I don't know that that would be true for everybody, but I get the overall idea. But I think the danger of that idea back then, at least the way I saw it, was that you were giving people the idea that blood sugar management didn't make a damn bit of difference if you were young enough. You know, you've got five years to figure it out. Like, I remember being told that when she was two, like, don't worry, she's little. This won't hurt her right now. And I'm like, that does not make any rational sense to me. Yeah, my nephew was actually kind of the same thing. He was diagnosed when he was seven. And that was actually something that their peds endo actually told them. That's where I heard it. A hundred percent. It was, you know, don't worry right now. He's not, he's not in his teen years and you don't have to worry about anything. Well, from a, from a true standpoint, what I know is that while we want to aim for more optimal, regardless of what age you are. Yeah. There are there are some like factual studies that have actually shown that once kids get to the teen years with the hormones of growth within the teen years, that starts to make more impact on potential future complications if glucose levels are poorly controlled 
in that time frame of life comparative to earlier on when the hormones are different. There's still growth going on, obviously. Yeah. You, know, you can see it in your kids as they grow, what, even when they're little and they're not a teenager. But the difference being more of those like sex hormones really mm -hmm. into the teen years have more of an impact for whatever reason um, in the standpoint of glucose control being better or worse and then what happens down the road. I'm so, just trying to imagine like, uh, you know, changing the sentence slightly like how about this one uh oh your four-year-old can smoke cigarettes they're young enough their body will fight it off would you say that no how about no i don't know just a little crack cocaine she's only six you, you right. know like she'll bounce she back from to, that she wants to have the beer for dinner every night let her have let her beer. drink a little she's only eight it's never right. going to impact her long term like none of those things make sense to me they don't right and so when i was told that i was like listen I am not buying into this mess, you know, but at the same time, if it didn't go well for you in the beginning, I think it is a lot akin to smoking cigarettes. The sooner you yeah. quit, the better off the rest of your time is going to be. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's the reason that, you know, parents are told not to smoke at home with their kids. Right. Yeah, it's right. Just, it's impactful it, it is. To everybody. Um, I mean, it's actually something for my nephew. I had told his parents when they said, well, the doctor says it's okay if he sits at, you know, 200 all night, it's pretty safe. And as long as he's staying under 250, that's okay. And I'm like, that, that, that's not okay. <laughs> I mean, I really had to like emphasize to them that, that that's not okay. He might only be seven, eight years old, but these numbers are not where you want him to be. Right. Well, you um, know, here's what it reminds me of. And I probably said this once before, but it, it fits right here very well. I once helped a person in their late 30s make a pretty drastic transformation to their management pretty quickly. And when it, uh, when it kind of, you know, our time together came to an end, this person was really grateful that their blood sugars were now like in range and controllable mm -hmm. and, you know, not so variable but angry and sad that someone hadn't told them about this Before. sooner because they had had diabetes for, you know, the better part of 25 years. Right. And, and we're really concerned about exactly this question. Like what's going to happen to me in the future based on what happened to me, you know, in the beginning and, and why would nobody have explained to me that, you know, pre-bolusing is important or any of the other little right. things that we talked about together and the best I could say in that moment, because I was out of my depth, you know what I mean? Like, I don't have diabetes. No one's ever lied to me about my health care for dozens of years. And so right. I just said, listen, you know, now just do a good yeah. job, move forward. You can't change the past. You know, any other birthday card euphemisms you can think of. Um, there's no sense in hanging on to anger about this. It's like you have a real chance right. now. Like, let's see what happens, you know? Right. Um, keep doing it and, and let's hope for the best. And right. I mean, do you really have any other options than hoping for the best? No, yeah. there, there's not. And even, you know, if you knew what wasn't working in the past, it was likely because technology wasn't where it was today. Yeah. Right. I mean, my, my mom definitely says, as I've said before, if she had the technology now, she would have felt a lot more comfortable sending me off to a sleepover that the parents weren't given like a two page sheet of instructions of what to do. Yeah. You know, she would have been able to follow things from home and felt a lot safer when she sent me to sleepaway camp. And, you know, all of those pieces of management that were there 
I mean, we did the best that we could, but I'm quite sure that in between the finger sticks I had a day, I'm sure it looked like a roller coaster because mm-hmm. we didn't know what was going on. I think that at some point in the very beginning, the statement, 200 safe overnight, don't let it go over 250. <laughs> I think that was probably reasonable at some point, you know what I mean? Because yeah. of the lack of technology. And when they say safe, they didn't mean safe to your health. They meant safe that you won't drop too far right. and get really low. Like that was the, that was just try to understand that at some point because of a, a where the technology was in the past, the entire focus of type one diabetes management was don't have a seizure. Right. And don't right. go into DKA. It was right. literally these two opposites. They didn't care about anything else because they didn't know to care about anything else because they didn't have right. the ability to care about anything else. And for little kids who don't often have symptom awareness. Even more important. Even more important. Back then, right? Because they can't tell you. The problem ends up being is that as we leapt forward and leapt forward and leapt forward with technology, the education didn't. Yeah. And 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 these, you know, tried and true methods of well, two hundred safe and don't go over two fifty, they got passed down generation to generation. So what you're really seeing is that there's one group of people, healthcare providers, right, who have an origin story. And that origin story builds on how they talk. But a different group of people over here, device manufacturers, right? They're trying for something different. These two people do not intersect in their day-to-day business and the way they talk with other people. So while this guy's telling you 200 safe, this company's over here telling you, hey, I think our gear can keep your blood sugar at 85. Which one sounds scarier when the doctor's telling you, just 200 is okay. You don't want to get low. And then the next person's like, hey, 85 is possible. That sounds scary. Right. And so you're never going to reach the masses until healthcare professionals have the ability to believe that the technology does what it does and right. are willing to say it out loud. And, right. you know, I don't know. Good luck with that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck getting a bunch of people to say what they think. You know, instead of what they think is safe to say. Um, yep. That's going to be very interesting. Uh, you know, if the FDA would let, not let, but I guess if if device manufacturers could get into the business of teaching their devices beyond this is how it turns on and this is how it turns off, then they might have the, the onus might be on them to show you how to use it correctly. Correct. Um, right. And because then they could really market their their devices as uh, living healthier, not just easier. Because that's how that's right. how they're stuck. That's how they're stuck marketing right now. It'll make your life easier. It'll be a right. smaller part of your life. More like, flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. don't want to have to disconnect to do this. Right. Omnipod. And like like and that's the stuff there. I don't want to say stuck saying because there's a lot of valuable information in there. Yeah. But they don't get to say the rest of it. Like, no. why don't you try because a temp basal increase when you have pizza? Like, they can't say it. They can say the pump does attempt basal increase. They can't yeah. tell you why in the heck you might want to try it. And therefore, it's a tool you don't really, it's a screwdriver and you don't know how to, you don't, know, it. What it, you don't know what it's for. You, know? right. you just know you have right. it. Um, right. Anyway. All right. That went down a weird road. Um, let's see. Sarah says, Sarah has three names and her middle name is fun. Uh, Sarah says, I'm not sure if this is big enough. There's nothing too small that Jenny and I won't talk about. But no. is it true that younger children are harder control to control compared with older ones in terms of their blood sugar? 
Does body size make a difference? I always look at people's stable graphs with such envy as we seem to go up and down so much. It sounds like their daughter's two years old. Is that more normal in younger children or is that more proof of my inexperience? Because we're only about a year and a half into this. Well, I think it's probably both an indication of your inexperience and normal. I always tell people, you know, figure out how to use the insulin so you can feed them, so you can fatten them up, because this is easier when they get bigger. (laughs) But I don't know if that's just me or if that's true. Yeah, no. And there there are kind of a number of questions within the Mm. question, right? There's there are a number of things to kind of bring about are younger kids harder to manage than older kids. I think it's it's a different strategy of management. Right. Because variables through the life cycles change whether you're two or eighty two. There's always going to be something that's a little different. In young children, you know how fast growth happens. So growth impact is always going to be more profound than when you get to, let's say, the teen years, especially for like a teen girl, let's say, who's not growing anymore, but now she's got hormones Mm -hmm. and a monthly cycle and things like that. So that's in the picture, despite growth not being in the picture, right? You know, we talk about it wrong, though. We always say diabetes is always changing. Diabetes is the same. Their bodies are changing. That's right. Right, right. So, you know, when your kid's littler, and like Jenny's saying, they're putting on a pound or two every couple of weeks, that's making your basal not correct as they get bigger and bigger. Right. Or at the same time, they become more active, they start to walk, or they start to do more things. That changes the impact. And yep. and so, is it harder? It's the same. It just changes more frequently while yeah. they're growing, right? And then right. when they get to that point you're talking about where they're like a, a you know an adult woman who's getting their period, it's still happening but it's happening cyclically by the week. This week is different than that week, and that week is different than this week, and you have to know what week you're in. Correct. Yeah. And then, you know, with little kids too, you know, the other other part of little kids that can – increase the amount of variability which she brings in you know I feel like we're all over the place versus some of these graphs that I see that are just nice and flat well the variability with a small child two three five years old or whatnot you know and I I mean I know myself with even the way that my three-year-old eats he could love the same exact breakfast and eat it a hundred percent for five days in a row and I gave it to him on the sixth day and he eats three nibbles and he's like I'm all done, mom. Okay, well, great. Now, if I had had to like bolus for that, and I work with so many kids that I see this as a consistent problem, right? right? I mean, that adds variability. Now you've bolused for this amount of insulin, and there's not this amount of food there. So you Mm -hmm. have to offset it in some way. Well, that brings in a potential roller coaster. If you haven't quite yet figured out how to offset what you sort of front loaded with, right? I I always say that I think the key to pre-bolusing kids is to choose whatever amount you know they're going to eat. Like it might just be five carbs, but no, right. but, but if you ever sat your kid down, they've just been like, I'm not eating this at all. No, they put right. something in their mouth, right? Or they switch to something. So if it's a 20 carb meal and you have that feeling of like, I don't know, is this the day the kid just doesn't eat their breakfast? Pre-bolus right. five you know, carbs of it, right? And get some insulin on your side. And then when you see, oh, this food's going in, then put the rest of it in right away. 
Or right. if they throw up their hands and are like, not today, lady, then you've got <laughs> some time to decide what else they could eat. You haven't put Correct. in the insulin for the entire 20 carbs. Now you're sitting there just staring through the wall going, oh, my God, <laughs> eat the food. Because there's, because there's reasons you don't want to do that, you know, right. because you don't want to cause a weird relationship with your type 1 diabetic and food. You don't want them to feel like Correct. food is a thing they have to do even when they don't want to. There's some really good psychological reasons not to do that. Uh, you also don't want to get into the roller coaster situation where their blood sugar goes to 300 and then comes crashing down and then they have to feed them and that becomes your day. So right, you have to right. pre-bolus something. You know, it's so funny that I was corresponding with a person who has gastroparesis one time and they were saying, I really want to pre-bolus, but I don't know how because some days my body starts to digest my food and some days it doesn't. Right. And after a long phone conversation, I said, you should do what people do with little kids. And just mm -hmm. get a little bit started. And then as you see your blood sugar wanting to go up, getting the indication that your food is being digested, then throw the rest of it in. Right. That ended up working for that person. Or throw some in and extend the rest of it. Right. Or Keep uh, right. cheating it out into the future, but get it moving. Yep. Get and, it moving. Mm -hmm. And when, when I said that, she's like, that's brilliant. I was like, that's not brilliant. That's desperate. I did not know what else to say to you. Right. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> well, but you've had enough experience with other situations in which – that that sounded like a good alternative. There and were it enough parallels is. to try it. You know what yeah. I mean? You know, absolutely. So. Absolutely. I, I was going to say that I think that uh, a, a pit that we all fall in at one point or another with diabetes, or maybe life in general, is feeling like there are rules that mm -hmm. we don't know and that we have to find those rules so that we can follow them. When obviously right. that's not how life really works. Right? There are guidelines. Yeah. I always feel like it's like, a, this is your guideline to like the exploration of the woods behind your house, right? There's no rules to right. follow. It's just don't go near the growling bear in the bush over Some there. Some best practices, maybe. Some best practices, <laughs> right? You know, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I did want to say is, you know, it's really hard with today's online community with diabetes, mm -hmm. which is phenomenal. It, it's great. I wish I had had it as a teenager and even an adult into college. It would have been fantastic. Right. But I also think that we unfortunately start to compare to what other postings show. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I don't think that's fair to do. So in this case, you know, this mom who's like, well, I see these straight graphs all the time. You don't know what went into that straight graph. Yeah. You don't know the food intake. You don't know the activity level. You don't know where they are in diagnosis or whatnot. Yeah. There's, there's a lot more that goes into that flat or that curvy or that, you know, up, down roller coaster or whatever kind of graph. And so it's easy to stay. It's hard to like accept, but don't judge your own management off of what somebody else has posted or the things that they say are the important parts of getting right. to that. So I'm going to show Jenny something that she doesn't see. They're going to see, where's this out? Where's my camera? Can you see that? Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's three different people I'm tracking on Dexcom. What, right. are, what are their blood sugars? Uh, one is 98 with a horizontal straight steady. Another one is 93 with an angled arrow up. And another one is 130 with a steady straight horizontal arrow. Okay. 
Do you know what those three people have in common? They all have diabetes. And they're managing <laughs> their diabetes. This is going to sound horrible to somebody, but trust me, I'm, I'm not trying to be like that. I'm not being pompous. They're using my style. Sure. That's what they have in common. They're reacting to certain things, doing certain things, not letting some things happen, like that kind of stuff. There, there's a, it's a system. They have a system yeah. in their head. They're following that system. And so sure. at the same time of day, those are three blood sugars that are pretty much the same. You know, right. they're, they're, they're stable in a great spot. Yep. It's because it's, it's the style. It's your right. style of management. So when, when Sarah asks, is this my inexperience? Not might necessarily. Be. It might be an experience. It also might be that you're very experienced at something that doesn't work. Right. You know, and now you're just beating your head against that wall going, I don't understand. This is what I was told to do. Why isn't it working? So right. there's one of those kids on there. I was texting with their mother last night and I was like, you know, you need to give her some insulin right here. And she's like, I don't want to. Her blood sugar is only 140. And I was like, I don't care. <laughs> like, if you don't stop this 140 and make it 90, then two hours from now when she goes to bed, she's going to be 200. And then right. you're going to get into a different space. And so my concept is if you don't get high, you won't be high. You won't be high. Right. right. And, and it turns out if you put those concepts into practice, I mean, the, the pro tip series you and I did is just, an, it's, that's it. Like that's the whole thing right there. If you right. do those things, that's it. If you, if you gave me three more kids, their blood sugars would be right around there right now. Then there's right. anomalies that happen. Like, you know, I don't sometimes, you know, people eat things and they don't say what they eat or they miscount carbs or don't, sure. don't aren't intuitive enough about glycemic load and index and stuff like that. But for the most part, you take the steps. It usually works. Right. I mean, I, I don't know another way to say it. Like, I'm not trying to say it's easy. It's not easy. But there, right. there is a formula in there that leads to that. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah. two kids in there that are, you know, one of them's probably still asleep. One of them, they're in different, <laughs> they're in different time zones, but they right. all have the same experience. The same so. strategy. Yeah. So Sarah, I think you figure out what works and then stay flexible while your kid is growing and keep applying the tools, understanding that the game is changing right? a little bit. So yeah. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. And certainly reach out, you know, for help. Remember to ask more, remember to ask more questions, even at your doctor or endo visit or CDE visit or whatever it is. Remember to ask more in-depth questions in order to get more in-depth help. Yeah. Oftentimes, I think people end up going in not really knowing what to ask because they haven't gotten help before. So they just leave it up to the doctor to kind of give information and then they get nothing back and they think, well, my doctor is not very helpful. But if you don't bring in more, I see this happening around gymnastics every day. I see this happening every Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. Can you help me? Great. Now the doctor has more to go into the data and pull and get a trend and offer better suggestions. You have to, um, you have to step back and have a macro view of diabetes, but you have to have micro questions. Right. Like, right. So like, you can't just yell, I don't understand every night at midnight, her blood sugar is high, but that's your macro view of it. That's not helpful to a person trying to help you. What's your micro view of it? What's happening in the hours just prior to that? That those are the things you need to know. Um, 
you know, it's this one kid's blood sugars were not great three days mm-hmm. ago. And if you looked at the tech, I did it through texting. If you look sure. at the questions I asked them, most doctors would not look and go, oh, well, those are the questions that need to be answered to fix this kid's blood sugar. I ask really odd things that answer the questions I need answered. And right. so my my point is, is that those are the questions to me you ask. Those are the mm-hmm. like like the micro specific questions. Yep. Um, and I don't know how you, Sarah, I don't know how you figure that out other than experience time and don't give up. But I, I can tell Sarah and anyone listening to this, my experience has been that people who are thoughtful and concerned and care and ask questions like the one Sarah's asking, those are the people who make out well because right. they're, they're, they're interested. Right. And they're trying. And they keep looking bef- until they get an actual answer that yeah, helps. That's it. Yeah. They're interested and they're trying and they care. And to be honest, that's pretty much what you need. Right. And as long as you don't give up, you'll find it at some point. You might right. not find it for me. You might find it somewhere else. But right. you'll find something that somebody says that clicks with you and makes it all feel kind of easy at that. Right. Jenny, are we out of time? We have about nine minutes left. Nine minutes. Get something mm-hmm. easy for nine minutes. Um. Oh, there, there's no answer to that one at all. Hold on a second. Oh. <laughs> it's like a half an hour conversation. And a lot of people asked it too. Uh, maybe it's a, maybe it's a, 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 well, let's find out what you think. How do you calculate your bump and nudge ratios? So when oh. I say to somebody, Hey, that blood sugar is 140. I'd like it to get back to 90, bump it back down. That's not a, it's not a measurable idea to people, I guess. Okay. So I usually say, how much insulin do you think moves it from there to there? And just go with your gut. Right. I- and it, it kind of starts then with, kind of brings you back to the, the pro tip series mm-hmm. of figuring out things like basal and sensitivity factor and even, you know, that kind of stuff. Because really, anytime you're playing with the bump and nudge, you're playing with the assumption that you know a certain amount of insulin, let's say one unit, will move your blood sugar a certain number of points, yeah. right? So if you know one unit changes your blood sugar by 60 points mm-hmm. and you know that your cup of coffee in the morning, without bolusing for it, you've noticed that it kind of raises your blood sugar by 65 points on average. Well, you know what? then you need to start taking a unit of insulin to stop the 65-point rise because one unit offsets you by 60 points to drop you from too high back to where you want to be, right? right? So the bump and nudge is kind of, if they're looking for a math, it goes along mostly with sensitivity factor or correction factor. It goes along with how much do I want to knock this down and how sensitive am I to insulin at this point of the day, because mm-hmm. many people also have sensitivity factors that differ based on nighttime, daytime, afternoon, or whatnot. Um, I myself have two sensitivity factors, one that lasts through the daytime, one that's overnight for me. Okay. So, um, you know, I'm more sensitive to insulin overnight. So I don't need a load of correction if I choose to bolus for a higher number that gets up there overnight. I don't need as much overnight as I do during the daytime. Yeah. I, I have to say, I don't think I take it for granted because of the podcast, if, but if I wasn't talking about diabetes this much, I probably would. That idea that I can look at Arden's blood sugar at 11 o'clock and say, 
that needs a half a unit and look at that same blood sugar at 7 p.m. and say, hey, that's a unit or at four o'clock in the morning, it's 0.2. It just I, I don't know how to explain other than to say I look at the blood sugar, I look at the situation and then I know how much to give her. But I don't know how to tell you what I saw and how it led me to that answer. Decision. Yeah. yeah. Other than to say, have diabetes for a while, and all of a sudden you'll just sort of know. Some of it is. Some of it's experience, definitely. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I can say that, gosh, if I know that one unit, again, changes my blood sugar by 60 points, but I've also got, like, a load of fat in the picture. Well, gosh. Yeah. Need a lot more of a nudge than you would if it was just because of miscounted carbs. And I'm not saying that right? I haven't adjusted a blood sugar at 1 a.m. and an hour and a half later been woken up by the same high blood sugar and then thought, oh, I forgot what we ate for dinner. Now I remember, right. like, that's going to happen. You know what it I mean? Is. But the good news about that is, is that I was trying to stop a 140 and it's still 140. I didn't right. stare at the 140, hope for the best, watch it turn into a 220, bolus for it, forget about the pizza, get up again at three o'clock when it's 250. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you right. don't let it get out of hand. So it's more manageable. And then the bumping and the nudging becomes less, in my mind, dangerous because you're using less, a less, a smaller amount of insulin to accomplish something. So I, if you ever see me speak, which you might never see again, but, um, (laughs) and that joke's funny for a couple of reasons and everyone listening is only going to get one of them, but that's okay. Uh, yeah, thank you, Jay. Um, which you may never see again. If, you know, I'll say, look, I'd like to see you stop a 110 or 120 diagonal up because you might stop it with 0.2 or 0.3. Or if you're an adult with a unit with a tiny bit of insulin, you come back to 90 and you sit stable again. The likelihood of you getting low after that is small because you've used such a small amount of insulin to begin with. So that's how you keep from overcorrecting. And that's how I think of bumping and nudging. Um but, and that is you know. that is really where our where our hybrid closed looping systems like control IQ, you know, with tandem, yeah. that's really where those systems are going. The idea that the bump and nudge becomes less of your play mm-hmm. and more of the pumps interaction because it's got CGM data to interact with and it can see a rise happening. It knows, okay, I've got this value. I don't want this person to get above. So it starts nudging it either with a temporary basal um, change or with these little micro, you know, boluses. The control IQ system is a nice system so far um, in in what it can do. But I think that's where, you know, further progress into the pump companies, that's where they're going with the technology because they don't want, well, they don't, people with diabetes don't want, while you know how to bump and nudge now, you don't want to have to pay attention so much to have to do it all the time. 100%. I always tell people too, bumping and nudging is a teaching tool. At some point, you should learn from the bumping that you should have done something different before. At the meal, you know, right. like it's not a it's not a long term idea. It's part of a bigger teaching idea. And having said that, right. when I watch an algorithm change basal rates and you know put insulin in, I'm like, that's what I do. One yeah. day I'm not going to have to do that. And, and right. I'm like, ooh, this is very <laughs> exciting. Um, and by the way, bumping and nudging is you know it's my idea. The words uh, and they're for sale. Like if a pump company wants to buy them for marketing materials, <laughs> I'm open to having a conversation. You know, just let me know. That's right. Anyway, Jenny, I'm going to say thank you. Hold on one second. Yeah, thank you. You can actually hire Jenny Smith. Did you know that? 
She works at Integrated Diabetes. And they have a website aptly named integrateddiabetes.com. So that's where you can find more about what Jenny does in the professional life. I don't know how often I mention this, but I like to bring it up once in a while. Jenny is not a paid contributor to the podcast. She just really likes being here. So this is not an ad. Um, She's just a friend who likes being on the show. But that doesn't mean you can't, you know, throw her a couple of bucks, get some help with your blood sugars if that's what you need. Thank you so much for listening to the Juice Box Podcast, and thank you for supporting the sponsors. Sponsors like Dexcom, that you can find out more about at Dexcom.com forward slash Juice Box. And how about tubeless insulin pumps? Well, there's only really one, but it's called Omnipod, and you can find out more about that and get yourself a free, no-obligation demo sent right to your home by going to MyOmnipod.com forward slash Juice Box. And to find out more about Arden's blood sugar meter, the Contour Next one, you go to contournext.com forward slash juice box. You're seeing a theme here. You get it. And of course, Touched by Type 1 is at touchedbytype1.org. Great organization doing wonderful things for people living with type 1 diabetes. And all they want is for you to know they exist. So go check them out. Touchedbytype1.org. You think we'd get a juice box slash in there, but it's not happening. It's okay. I'm not hurt. Oh my God, that was exhausting. I'll see you guys later. Bye. It's hard to talk like that for a long time. Everything's real deep and you're trying to enunciate and to not over speak or understand. It's like, hello, this is the world. You know, it all feels like that a little bit. It's been a long week too. It's Friday. I need to get to the weekend. Actually, I'm turning 49 on Sunday and uh, I'm feeling every moment of it. I'm not. I'm okay. Am I? It's hard to tell. Who am I arguing with?